this week on the Backtable podcast. The world of adult IR is getting increasingly subspecialized. You know, you're either you're a hepatobiliary IR, right. you're a vascular IR, you're MSK. You can't afford to do that in pediatric IR because you need to be a jack of all trades. And I love that, that literally in one day I might be sclerosing an orbit stenting a baby's trachea and putting a nephrostomy in on, up on the unit. So you, you do a bit of everything and I really enjoy that. And personally, I really enjoy working with kids. They never complain. They recover. They really don't. You go on a post-op ward round and you can't find the child because they run off somewhere to the playroom or else they're like, Dr. Alex, I drew you a picture and I've had pizza and it's so cool. And when can I come back? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all the episodes of this podcast on our library, which can be found in iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is www.backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a written review, or reach out to us on social media. Just let us know how can we make this podcast better resource for our community, and we'll do our best to make that happen. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. Today, we're going to be talking about vascular anomalies with Dr. Alex Barnacle. This can be a daunting topic for many physicians, IR, and other endovascular specialists. So we have Dr. Alex Barnacle, pediatric interventional radiologist, here to help us with the discussion. Alex, welcome to the show. Chris, hi. Thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. So why don't we just do a, a quick introduction so you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice and how vascular anomalies play into that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so as you said, I'm a pediatric interventional radiologist. I work at a, a specialist children's hospital, so children's practice only in central London. And yeah, you know how it goes. You never plan exactly when you start doing your, you, you start off on your career. You You may think you know where it's going to end up going, but it often goes in different directions. And for one reason or another, I've ended up having a really large interest in vascular anomalies, which is great. I wouldn't have it any other way now. I guess that started when I was doing, I did pediatrics before I did radiology and then went into radiology thinking that I would be a pediatric radiologist, but got sidetracked by interventional radiology on the way. And at the time, didn't think that pediatric IR was a thing, but it was just kind of starting in the UK at that stage. So I was really lucky to end up at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London doing that. But in my training, I worked at Hammersmith Hospital with a guy called James Jackson, who certainly in the UK and Europe is, was extremely well known for his vascular anomalies practice. So that kind of, I got bitten by the bug then and realized that that was what I wanted to do. Yeah, if, if you do any pediatric IR, I think vascular anomalies become a, a significant part of your practice, even if you don't intend it to go that way. It's, it's, a, it's a big part of the scene. Sure. So early on, so basically in your fellowship training, you got exposed to vascular anomalies and those were procedures you were interested in or like once you got into practice and you were ped pediatric IR, then it's it's like sometimes you just assume the roles that they're are there to be filled. Yeah, I guess a bit of both. It is, as you said, it's a really daunting 
area of medicine. I think it's extremely poorly taught at medical school, if at all. Um, and maybe that's changing now, but that was certainly the case when I was training. Most people can't remember it ever coming up at medical school. And even during radiology training, it doesn't come up that often. So although I had an interest in it, I probably wouldn't have decided that it was going to be my specialist field. And then when I started, my colleague was more than happy to hand over the, the running of the multidisciplinary team to me. So that must have been, gosh, I don't know, within a year or two of me starting as an attending. So pretty early on. So I kind of learned on the job a bit. But, you know, that's that's one way of doing it. That's good. For sure. For sure. Taking up the mantle, the good fight. And and I'll leave it up to you because this is a, a tough topic to discuss. But one of the, the places I thought we could start was uh, a review of uh, the nomenclature of vascular anomalies. I know it's it's kind of stale, but at the same time, I think it's important that audience and anyone who's going to be getting into treatment of vascular anomalies kind of understands what they're treating and why talking about these lesions, very specific nomenclature matters. Yeah, and it and it really does, but maybe not so much in the way that people think because it's got so overcomplicated. And in fact, I think it's really simple. And the more complex the official classification systems have become, the more I think people are leaving that to one side and choosing more simplistic ways of talking about it, which is actually helpful. I think there's a tendency, it's human nature, isn't it, when you, or as a, perhaps it's just as a medic, when you don't understand a subject very well, you think you need to be using the big words to sound like an expert. And I think vascular anomalies is, has really fallen prey to that. And, you know, we reviewed our practice maybe 12, 14 years ago. We audited all the referrals. We got to our IR vascular anomalies clinic and 82% of children referred to our clinic came with the wrong diagnosis. And that's wow. phenomenal. You wouldn't run a cystic fibrosis clinic and 82% of the patients didn't have cystic fibrosis, you know? Right. And people throw the word hemangioma in there or just put the term angioma on the end of everything or call everything venolymphatic or an AVM because they know that's a word that you can use in this field. Whereas actually those are unhelpful and they've become even less helpful in the world of the internet where families and patients look up these terms and therefore the effect of the nomenclature being wrong is amplified a hundredfold, I think. So I, I guess that's a, a good place as any to start. So can you talk a little bit about the classification of the nomenclature system? And then uh, it sounds like you actually have a way that you think about it more in terms that makes a difference for how you approach these lesions. Yeah, sure. So there are some different classification systems out there. The one that's used most commonly is the ISVA classification. That's IWSVA, the International Society for the Study of Vascular Anomalies. And they first came up with their classification system based on John Mulliken's system that he developed in 1984. That's John Mulliken, who works at Boston Children's. And then that has been adapted over the years. So the most recent classification is from 2018. And every time they've revised it, it's got a little bit more complex, unfortunately, rather than less so. But essentially, it divides everything into two big fields. So vascular tumors, which includes hemangiomas, so those are predominantly benign, but are labeled as vascular tumors, and then vascular malformations. And if you're an adult IR, the vascular tumor section is really tiny in terms of your practice. Those, most of those are diseases of, of childhood or infancy. So we're not really needing to talk too much about those, but it's the vascular malformations. And then the easiest way to divide those up, and this follows the ISFA classification system, is to divide them into what is the 
vessel or the space or the fluid that is predominant in that lesion. And so really your four types are capillary, venous, lymphatic or arterial. And I guess capillary is a slight outlier. And again, in terms of interventional radiology, it's the one that's the least relevant to us. So if we're looking at venous, lymphatic and arterial, we can divide those into slow flow or low, low flow or slow flow or even no flow, if you're thinking about lymphatic, I guess, sure. versus high flow. And those high flow lesions are the AVM. So everybody uses the word AVM at the top of that entire classification tree. But actually, it's a very specific term right down at the bottom when we start to get pretty specific. Okay. So one of the things I'll tell for the audience is that for the IS, do you say ISVA? Is that ISVA? Yeah. Okay. So for yeah. the ISVA classification, um, I have a PDF that we can link to in the show notes. And if I can kind of summarize, there's two broad categories, basically, uh, and I could be botching this a little bit, but tumors and then not tumors, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, then, perfect. so so if you're, if you're an adult interventional radiologist, you can just say, okay, I'm going to put out the tumor side of it. So that's like your infantile hemangiomas things. Like this. Yeah, there are some weird things in there that okay. are fascinating if it's your bag. But on the whole, you don't really need to know about those if you're not seeing a lot of children with it. Yeah. Okay. And then, so once we have our uh, vascular malformations, then you have capillary, which it's there, but it's not a, a big part of our practice or it's, or it's mixed into like a capillary arterial. But then there's arterial, lymphatic, and venous. And then you can broadly categorize those into low flow or slow flow versus the high flow. Yeah, exactly right. And I think I really like that idea of defining it by its flow because a lot of people use the word venolymphatic. I see it all day, every day on, on imaging okay. reports. And, and I can see why people do it because potentially it's, I guess it's sometimes hard to tell them apart, but I think it's incredibly rare. And this is one of my hobby horses. I think it's really rare to see somebody with both mixed within the same lesion. I think the reason why it gets it gets confused is that on imaging, you can get confused quite easily. MRI can really get you stuck in the weeds. Whereas I think if you've met the patient, you've examined them and you've asked about their symptoms, then it's, it's really easy to tell between the two. But if you're a diagnostic radiologist stuck in the reporting room all day, you don't have that privilege and that's where you start to get unstuck. So it's one of those areas of medicine that relies on you meeting the patients and being part of a clinical MDT and actually in the clinic and seeing the patients. And once you do that, you can tell them apart very easily. And the reason I think it's important is the treatment of venous is different to the treatment of lymphatic and the prognosis and the symptomatology are very different. So if you're going to give the patient the, the right idea of what it is they've got and what it's going to look like for the next 20 years, it's helpful to be able to tell those two apart. So if you say slow flow, you're not committing yourself either way and the, pair, the patients don't go off down, down a side alley, you know, thinking one thing when actually it might have been the other. So uh, from an IR perspective, whenever you're looking at like MRI, like an MRI patient, say like there's a situation where you haven't met the patient, are you able to tell whether it's uh, venous uh, lymphatic malformation or, or do you, is that like a critical component of it that you have to have met the patient to be able for anyone to stand a chance at telling the difference? No, no, not at all. And, and there are really classic signs that you could see on ultrasound and on MRI. You know, if you've got a small ill-defined lesion or the imaging's not great, particularly in the head and neck, I think they can get quite confusing. But on the whole, we should be able to tell them apart. So a lymphatic malformation 
is made up of cysts containing usually a clear fluid, although they can bleed into the cysts. So then you're going to see altered blood products, either debris swirling around in the cysts on ultrasound or different signal characteristics of, of altered blood on MR. And the only thing that's going to enhance are the walls, because obviously that's the only bit that's stroma, right? Mm -hmm. um, the contents of the cysts are not going to enhance. Whereas a venous malformation is going to, the whole thing should fill in, but very, very slowly. So the, the easiest way to think of a venous malformation is really to think about varicose veins. It's, and once you've made that association, it's really simple. The symptoms are the same. The problems are the same. And the imaging, the, the flow is so slow that you get fluid, fluid levels from stagnant blood, even if after a patient's been on the scanner just for 10 minutes, you get clot in it, you get calcified clot in it. So phleboliths, which is the term for the calcified clots in a venous malformation, I think that's pathognomonic. There's no other thing in, in imaging that looks like that. If you've got calcified lesions and a lobulated high T2 signal lesion, typically in muscle, it's a venous malformation. So it's quite classic. Got it. So then taking outside, so moving from the realm of imaging to what you see in the clinic. Well, let me actually take one step back. Can you just talk a little bit about like your referral patterns and how patients actually present to your clinic? And then, and then we can uh, dig in a little bit more as to how you can tell the difference on physical exam from a venous malformation versus lymphatic malformation. Yeah, sure. So the interesting thing about vascular anomalies, and if you've got a, a really great multidisciplinary team, it's what makes it interesting is that they get referred from everywhere because they're lumps and bumps that can occur anywhere in the body. And that's what I like, that you have to become a little bit of an expert in all the different systems. But it's also what complicates it because you don't necessarily have a pediatric surgeon and an orthopedic surgeon and an ophthalmologist who, are all, who all are experts in vascular anomalies. So they may get referrals they don't know what to do with. Mislabeling happens, misdiagnosis, sometimes mistreatment, and then it takes a very long time for them to get to the right place. But actually, I think if you can run a successful vascular anomalies team, you become everybody's best friend because everyone else is just so glad to hand these patients on to somebody who can take that pain away and, and they, they know that the patient's now in safe hands. So yeah, I, I love our practice. Over the years, we've set up a huge number of uh, multidisciplinary clinics. So I run a weekly clinic with a dermatologist, which as I say, for, for pediatrics, that's probably more relevant because of the hemangiomas and other things that are coming through. And of course, the overgrowth, which we haven't really talked on, but that's a, a whole other field of, of you know, segmental overgrowth, the clippal chinorni, all of those conditions that we haven't really touched on, had time to touch on today. But I also, I run a joint clinic with ophthalmology. I run a joint clinic with urology for urogenital vascular anomalies. We have clinics with an orthopedic surgeon, a regular weekly clinic with a plastic surgeon. And I think you have to run it like that. We, we also do standalone IR clinics for the very simple stuff that doesn't need someone else involved. But if you run joint clinics like that, you've got access to things like physiotherapy and occupational therapy, psychology, genetics, hematology, all of the other smaller subspecialties that maybe it's different in the States. I don't know. But in the in the UK, it, it's not so easy to draw all of those subspecialties in. So we kind of tag on to the, the, you know, the clinics that already exist and try and build up a little area of expertise within them. And I like that. I think that's fun. Well, I can't speak for the entire United States, but I, I would say we, <laughs> we also share some of the same hurdles. So once a, a patient has made it to your clinic, whether it's the IR standalone or 
maybe shunted through uh, a different part of the clinic, either from where it is or the problems that it's causing. Can you talk about some of the physical exam findings that help you further characterize like what vascular uh, anomaly you have on your hands? Yeah, sure. So the vascular tumors that we talked about right at the beginning tend to be things that are there pretty much from birth. So, you know, if you've got a suddenly growing lesion in a 10-year-old or a 20-year-old, you need to be thinking about something else. And of course, that's worth talking about briefly touching on, that it, that hidden in all of these lumps and bumps clinics is going to be the odd tumor. So you need to make sure you're not too blinkered and thinking that everything in your clinic has to be a vascular malformation. Every year we see one or two things come through that, that are sarcomas or, or something similar. But for the malformations, by definition, they're there from birth. They are a, a localized genetic anomaly that, that happens prenatally, but often they're not diagnosed at birth and they become more evident later on. There are some classic things that you can pick out in the history and the exam. So for a lymphatic malformation, they're not connected to the normal lymphatic system per se, but the lining of the cysts is, is made of lymphatic tissue that generates lymphatic fluid. So the really classic story is that if you've got typically a viral illness, a chorizal illness, which of course in children is super common, the lesion gets bigger as well. And the parents will often say to you, oh yeah, I knew that, uh, I knew that she was getting unwell because the cyst in her neck got bigger. And then, yeah, the very next day she came down with a cold. So that's a really classic story that it fluctuates from week to week, generally on how the child is. And equally, they can bleed into the cysts. So a cyst can suddenly become very large and hard and look bruised and then slowly, slowly settle and get smaller again over the next few weeks. So those are the two classic things you get with a lymphatic malformation. Venous malformations are, as I said earlier, really they're just stagnant blood within very dysplastic venous spaces. So they are affected by gravity. If it's in the hand and you lift the hand up, you can kind of milk the lesion out the blood out of the lesion and it will entirely decompress, sometimes leave you with quite wrinkly skin. And then if the patient then holds the hand down by their side again, it'll refill. You can make them get bigger often if they're in the head and neck with a valsalva maneuver, uh, with coughing, that kind of thing. Um, and if they're in the lower limbs, they typically are not that troublesome first thing in the morning, but they're much more achy and uncomfortable at the end of the day. So things like compression garments really help with them in this, exactly the same way as they would help with, a, with varicose veins, for instance. So all of those are, are pretty key. So whenever you have your patients in the clinic, is it helpful for you to have a bedside ultrasound handy or is almost all the imaging that you do, you just say, oh, okay, I want it. now I need my ultrasound tech to take a look at this lesion or a combination of the two? No, we take an ultrasound machine to the clinic with us and that works really, really well. Yeah, it's a one-stop shop, right? You're able to give them their diagnosis straight away. Um, you might not be able to know the extent of it. You might need to hand them on to MRI for that. But at least then you can tailor your MRI. I didn't mention AVMs there. So an AVM is a slightly different beast in that um, you should definitely be able, unless it's something very deep in the pelvis, say, you should definitely be able to diagnose an AVM clinically. It's hot, it's pulsatile, sometimes the skin overlying it is sweaty. And the really good going ones have got a thrill exactly the same as a dialysis fistula. So if you think of an AVM as a form of dialysis fistula, again, I find that a really helpful way of, of getting people to think about it. So if you've got all of those symptoms, you have an AVM. And again, then if you need to do further imaging, you can tailor it already knowing what the diagnosis is. 
but using cross-sectional imaging to either tell you whether you've got bone involvement, joint involvement, the extent of it, whether you've got a secondary lesion slightly higher up beyond the area that's symptomatic, for instance, but you're not using, I would advocate against using MRI to give you the diagnosis because as I say, I think it can be quite misleading. So is there a role for biopsy to play in any of these lesions? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And actually, normally when I'm lecturing on vascular anomalies, I try and steer clear of mentioning, don't forget there could be sarcomas lurking because it's in, it's exciting enough when somebody gets the concept, you don't want to then destroy their confidence by saying, oh, and by the way, one in 200 is going to be a tumor that you miss. But you're absolutely right. And actually, we have a pretty low threshold for biopsy. You can diagnose all of these on core needle biopsy and even the most vascular of vascular tumors, so long as you plug your track and they're all superficial, right? You can put compression on, you can get a diagnosis with the one proviso though, that it needs to go to a pathologist who knows what they're talking about. And they're as rare a beast as IRs who are interested in vascular anomalies, I think. So it's not uncommon at all to send it off and get a a report back saying it's a hemangioma in a 40-year-old. You know, it just can't be. And equally, if you get a patient referred to your clinic who brings a path report with them that says it's A and that doesn't fit, then I would definitely get that reviewed by a pathologist you trust because the diagnosis may be incorrect. Okay. I think that's an important point to remember for our pathology colleagues that as much specialization that can exist like within our interventional radiology practice, the same thing exists within their practice. Um, Sometimes I I don't think they get the same appreciation or maybe they're samely underappreciated. I don't know, but good point. I want to talk about um, when patients present to your clinic and you have a vascular anomaly, it it now has a name. Um, Do all of these lesions then go on for treatment or and I, I know it's a it's a loaded question because it it surely depends. But what are some common indications for treatment? So I think one of the most important things in the clinic is sadly to unpick a lot of the stuff that's been they've been told already. Many of them have been told it's a hemangioma and that it will go away. And you meet these twenty year olds, forty year olds who's still waiting for it to go away, and are quite shocked when you tell them it's really not going to go away. And that's a big deal, actually, telling someone they have a lifelong condition that is part of the way they were made. That's really different to telling them that they have a bump that is, you know, a temporary thing that we can just deal with. So the way you handle that depends, obviously, on the extent of the lesion and where it is, because some of them you can treat very easily. And equally, there are many things of them that don't need any treatment at all. So, yeah, I really get what you're saying with that, Chris. You you need to really assess where they are with it and whether it's causing a problem. And there's the additional layer to deal with with vascular anomalies, as many of them are superficial and discolor the skin. And so there's often a lot of pressure on you to fix something just because of how it looks, even if the patient's completely asymptomatic. And then that gets even more complicated in a child who isn't making that decision for themselves. And a parent desperately wants their child not to be teased at school, to look normal, to be part of the crowd. And I get all of that. But yeah, it takes a while to to work out in your own practice how you feel comfortable having that conversation and getting the message across that I'm not sure I want to put your child through a big operation that isn't necessarily a cure because of how just how it looks. And then most people who treat vascular anomalies would say that we don't talk about a cure. 
we more talk about treatment. Yeah, the small ones, a small venous malformation or lymphatic malformation, you can inject it and it will close up and the chances of a recurrence are very low. But even so, I would always say to a patient, you know, it could come back. Then the big ones, you've got to start a conversation about, we're going to get to know each other a lot over the years. You're going to come and see us every year. You're going to need two or three procedures, possibly a year. In fact, I was I had some trainees in, in the lab with me last week and I said, I, I really like using the phrase top up. You're going to have to come for a little top up once or twice a year of sclerotherapy, for instance. And that makes it sound like it's an ongoing thing that you have. It's not a procedure, it's not a treatment. So therefore we've taken cure out of the, the story. It's just part of normal life for years. This is what you're going to have to have done. And actually, I'm glad that you touched on that because I feel like this is very much like a paradigm shift from some of the things that we do in interventional radiology, where a lot of procedures that we do are one-offs, um, whether it be to just get you to another leg of the treatment or whether it be for something where you can treat and then just, you know, then you have complete resolution then just in follow-up waiting for something to reoccur. But I like that, how you lay the groundwork for expectation management and talk about how you're going to get to be good friends and you'll be coming back very often. I use something similar with uh, Dallas's patients in terms of, you know, you come in for tune-ups, you know, you say top off, I say tune-up in terms of um, like their fistula maintenance. Let's talk a little bit about, before we jump into the actual procedure component, the technical component, when do you involve other specialties or, or when do you know that you need to involve other specialties in terms of either, are there options for medical management of these or conservative management of these lesions with either compression stockings, medications you can take? radiation. Uh, I'm kind of throwing out a a lot of different things, but are any of those things considered before you start to uh, launch into maybe a treatment algorithm that's more endovascular in approach? Yeah, for sure. And actually, IR is probably, we've just started putting together a a handbook on on the management of these. And the IR is at the bottom of each of the chapters, really, because there's a lot else to think about before that. I suppose you could divide it into the two things. It may depend on which organ is involved. So if it's in the orbit, for sure, obviously that's got to go straight to ophthalmology and you need to know about their vision being safe before you do anything else. And equally, the bladder malformations that I see, if the child or the adult has got dysuria, I can't unpick whether that is because of the vascular malformation or intercurrent infections or anxiety or anything else. And so heading those patients straight into an appropriate clinic is really helpful. And similarly, if the joint is involved nowadays, we would get, I would get orthopedics involved much earlier. There's a limited amount orthopedics can offer actually, and they might be pretty hands off, but I still want them there in the clinic to tell me when the joint destruction is getting significant and and they've got more expert physio in terms of that kind of input. So it's a great scenario for them to be seen. And equally, I think we can be criticised and standalone IRs to be managing, you know, a knee joint venous malformation and never getting an orthopedic surgeon involved. I could see that down the line, someone could look back and say, you know, you're not really a knee joint expert. You could have asked somebody else. Sure. But more importantly, I think if we talk about the practicalities of it, it's really helpful having someone thinking about the medical management because we can't all be up to date on everything. And I certainly am not. But the medical side of the treatment of these is really progressing fast now. And it may be that in 20 years, we don't have a job to do in this regard, because I think the AVMs will be entirely managed um, medically, I believe. I think it's going to be possible to turn these things off. We'll see, but we definitely need somebody to be 
prompting us to keep thinking about that. The drugs at the moment that we have are, are pretty rough and ready and the complication rates are high, but you need to be having that conversation regularly. So in our hospital, that would be the dermatologists, but in other hospitals, it might be the oncologists. And often the geneticists are involved in that conversation as well, if they're looking at really targeted therapies that we've got some AVM patients where our geneticists are building the drugs to that particular patient's gene mutation now to try and turn off their AVM with some success. So those might be specialists you wouldn't immediately think of getting involved. Venous malformations, people with large venous malformations have got a coagulopathy and people forget that. I forget it all the time. Did you send the bloods? No, I forgot to do the bloods because mm -hmm. I was too busy talking about sclerotherapy. But if you can find an interested hematologist, that's invaluable because some of these patients have got really severe coagulopathies that need managing in different ways. And the patients just need to be aware of them. So if they, they, so they know that if they're in a trauma or they go for routine surgery for something entirely unrelated to their vascular malformation, they can tell the surgeons that they have a coagulopathy that needs to be managed preoperatively. And then yes, physiotherapy, occupational therapy are really, really important. And things like if it's in the hand, I like to get our hand surgeons involved because again, that sounds straightforward, but if it's your dominant hand, there are some really subtle things there that that they might be picking up on in terms of function that I wouldn't think to ask that might be really important. Um, and the hand therapists and clinic are great as well. Sure. I think that really underscores like the importance of if you're going to do these on a routine basis and make this a real part of your practice to get yourself involved or even start putting together like a multidisciplinary approach. Is that fair to say that, you know, in, in the pediatric world, if you're if you're within the vascular anomaly spectrum, that everyone's operating within this this um, structure? I don't think we all have that luxury. I think okay. our team have been going a long time and it's it's built up. And it also varies on who's in the organization at the time, right? So specialists come and go or retire. So the MDT doesn't always look the same. But even if it's only two or three, that's still better than having nobody for sure. Gotcha. So now getting on closer to the procedure, can we talk more about maybe a uh, day of the procedure in terms of pre-procedural checklists, in terms of antibiotics, uh, what sedation you want to have on board, are nerve blocks a part of the anesthesia? Yeah, sure. So if we're talking, so all high flow lesions you're going to treat under a general anesthetic and uh, venous malformation sclerotherapy in our practice, we try to get our older teenagers used to the idea of having some of their treatments done awake. With We use Entinox sedation because we don't have a full nurse-led sedation program, but any form of sedation might be great. If at all, actually, I think you can do many of these without sedation. So it does vary on what the lesion is that you're treating. And if you can get away without general anesthetic, then that's brilliant for patients who are coming back for repeat treatments. It just makes their day so much easier. And we are edging towards trying to do some of these patients on an outpatient basis, actually, to make it even slicker for them. It also gives the teenagers a sense of ownership of their condition. And part of that sort of transition to adult care, I think, is really important. It's very rare for us to give antibiotics if, we, if we're treating something in the mouth. Mm -hmm. So we do quite a lot of tongue lesions, for instance, we give antibiotics. But otherwise, no, I wouldn't say that's important. For venous sclerotherapy, if you're using STS or fibrovane, sodium, tetradecyl sulfate, it's renally excreted and it does affect renal function in high doses. It's not really been studied enough 
I got a great research grant a few years ago to look into it, but it was decided that it was a drug trial and the whole thing just escalated and, and never, yeah, never got off the ground. So those patients I would hyperhydrate. And we, I think it generally in the UK, we tend to be a bit uh, more late, perhaps a bit more laid back about this. So I would just ask the anaesthetist to hyperhydrate them during the general anaesthetic and remind the patients to drink a lot in the first 48 hours afterwards. But I know in a lot of the North American centers, they might pre-admit them and get some fluids going in the 12 hours beforehand. So it, it varies, but hydration is really important for these cases. And analgesia, not so much. I don't think there's anything particular that I would say. You're going to give steroids for lesions that are perhaps in the carpal tunnel or in the orbit or in the tongue, just to minimize the amount of swelling that you get. I think that's important. But yeah, I think there's, there's not a lot to think about pre-op actually. Okay. So no antibiotics, uh, maybe if you're in a tight compartment, um, pre-treat with steroids and as far as uh, sedation wise, really you can run the gamut from local to general anesthesia, just depending on where you are and, and basically your patient or and what they can tolerate. So let's get in a little bit to the procedure. We'll start with venous malformations. Yeah, sure. Okay. All right. So I guess take us through um, how you, actually, I, I'll leave it to you. Uh, you can pick the patient scenario that's like easiest to explain for people, like, you know, that like gets down to the foundation of what you're trying to do um, without like being, you know, I think if you started with like the tongue lesion, I think that might be complicated. So um, make it make it as easy as, or as uh, complex as you want. Yeah, sure. So um, your typical venous malformation is intramuscular, say in a lower limb. They classically occur in the suprapatella bursa. You get your patient on your IR table. I'd use ultrasound to help me identify the lesion and just take a look at it and see where the most compressible spaces are that therefore are the ones you're going to be able to fill and just get a sense of how solid or, or liquid it really is. And then I'm going to access that the lesion with a couple of needles. So you should use a two-needle technique generally, which means putting two different needle tips in close proximity to each other in the lesion. So you're using one to inject the solution in, and the other one is kind of an outlet valve. And that's particularly important for STS or fibrovane. If that backtracks up an artery, if you have a tight space and it backtracks up a feeding artery, for some reason, STS is hugely potent in an artery. And unfortunately, I wish it was more potent in a vein. <laughs> uh, so you can put 20 mils into a vein and it still doesn't close it. Sure. Um, but you can get half a mil into an artery and really, really cause damage. And I've had complications in, in that regard. So your two needle technique is using your second needle as an outlet. Oh, and so basically that that second needle for just to back up for the maybe the uninitiated. So you have one needle that's for the injection for the sclerosis and, and the second needle is in place to act as almost like a pop off valve. So as the pressure is increasing within the lesion of the compartment, instead of going into your arterial or backing up into an artery, it, it'll just decompress into the, the second needle that's been placed. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And in a perfect world, you actually it's really nice when you start to see your sclerosant bubbling out of the second needle. Yeah. So once you've got your two needles in, you're going to put some contrast in and just do some fluoro. Some people do use DSA, which I think if you're in the head and neck is great because you want to get some fine detail. But if you're in a, the calf, you've got no bony detail in the way, I would just use fluoroscopy. And that really shows you that you're in the lesion, that you haven't got rapid venous outflow, because if you did, you might want to coil or glue your outflow first, which is pretty rare, but you might want to. Equally, you might just want to put a tourniquet on the limb to occlude that outflow just for a minute or two because STS is only potent in blood for about 15 seconds. 
So you could then take that tourniquet back down again. And you don't want to fill the lesion with contrast because then it's all contrasting. Then you can't get the STS in. But once you're comfortable with where you are and how the lesion is filling, then through that same needle, I try both needles, see which one fills the lesion the prettiest, and then put your STS in. Most people foam it. And the reason you're foaming it is because essentially all the STS is doing is delivering a chemical burn to the endothelium. So what you want to do is get 360 degree wall contact. So if you just inject a fluid, it's either going to float on top of the blood or underneath it or mix with it. So you may not get any direct wall contact, but if you're injecting almost a 3D structure, a foam, it's going to push the blood out of the way in front of it and fill the whole lesion. And then in theory, anyway, you get 360 wall contact and everybody's got their own foam recipe. There's no perfect foam recipe out there. I was going to ask you what your foam recipe is, but if, if you want to just tell people to use your own foam recipe, there's no, maybe there's a little bit of voodoo involved in each. Yeah, I think sclerotherapy is like cooking. Everyone has got their own okay. little recipe, but I use five mils of STS, two and a half mils of air and two and a half mils of contrast. And the contrast would just be omnipaque, water-soluble contrast. Oh, so not necessarily like lapidol or anything? No, some people do use lapidol and you, get, you do get a nicer foam with that. And then other people use a lot more air than that. I just feel a bit anxious if you're treating a big lesion, you end up putting quite a lot of foam in, but a, a lot of air. But yeah, it settles out very quickly. But as long as you're quick with the mixing and the injecting, then I think you've achieved what it is you're trying to do. Gotcha. Yeah. And so then I would keep going until I've either filled the lesion or done as much as I feel like I want to do that day. And, and that's the million dollar question. Mm -hmm. So that most sclerosis cause swelling. And so there's a trade-off again. You don't want to frighten a patient by giving them enormous swelling, a lot of pain, you know, non-mobile for a couple of weeks afterwards. They're really not going to like you and they're not going to come back for more. Whereas if you tell them, you know, we're going to take this gently, I'm going to do two or three procedures, but I'm going to keep it safe and you're going to be back at work within a couple of days. For me, that seems a better way of doing it. But again, it depends on your patient and on the lesion. So do as much as you think you can with all of those factors in mind. Keep your total dose down because I think once you get past 20 milliliters of STS, you are going to knock that renal function, start knocking it off. And then most people would put some compression on if it was a dependent limb, so an arm or a leg afterwards. If you think about it, you've tried to denude the endothelium and now you want those walls to stick together to scar it down. So it doesn't make any sense to me to then leave it uncompressed so that it just fills with blood again. If the walls aren't opposed, then you haven't achieved anything at all. So similar to venous reflux disease whenever yeah you, so yeah, afterwards absolutely. and do you have any uh recommendations on like the amount of compression is um do you guys have a poundage or like a compression uh rating or just you have some sleeves in clinic that you hand them yeah exactly uh, so in our hospital the occupational therapists i they measure them up and you know for the kids they get them done and all the you know, princess or unicorn colors and whatever it is that is going to get a kid wearing their garment. But as long as it's graded compression, yeah, grade two graded compression would be great, but anything is better than nothing. And they can't get into their normal compression garments straight away anyway, because it's going to be swollen. So you might just want to put some tubey grip on for the first few days and then remind them to get back into their garment as soon as it fits. Okay. And as far as like with the amount that you try and tackle in uh, a single session, 
you mentioned having the the two needle system. I assume you just don't do uh, like one area with two needles, but you may have a, a couple different spots kind of picked out. Is that right? Like you could have up to yeah, okay, yeah, for sure. So if you've got one big lesion, say in the calf. You might put eight or 10 needles in during the treatment to access all the different bits of it because one needle position very rarely is going to fill the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Some people put all of those needles in at the beginning, but I think that they clot off, or in my experience, they clot off. These are kind of 21 or 23 gauge needles. So I put in two, inject, treat, pull them out, treat another area, yeah. and I move ahead like that. But it really depends on what you're comfortable with. And I think it's a, such a good question because the nightmare is you get faced with a patient with a whole limb that's affected and you believe that you have to treat the whole limb but I, you really run into trouble with that or the patient thinks that you have to treat the whole limb and the two of you really need to come to an understanding of look each time you come we're going to have a conversation about which area has been troubling you for the last couple of months and let's focus on that today and it's incredible the MRI the whole limb can look white on a T2 weighted sequence right and you can't see any normal muscle but they've got brilliant function and they're absolutely fine. They're just troubled by one part on the foot that rubs on the shoe and the knee joint. It's always the knee joint. Mm-hmm. So then focus on the, the foot and the knee and leave the rest alone if it's not bothering them because sclerotherapy's got a reasonably high complication rate. And so there's no point and, and you're not curing anything. Sure. So don't do it unless you have got an outcome in mind. So there's two things that I want to get to. One is, you know, what is the the outcome? But before that, I wanted to back up and talk about like when you have a uh, rapid venous drainage and you said there are a couple of ways to tackle it. You can either tackle it with, um, you know, get into it, coil it or uh, apply a tourniquet. And how do you choose between those two? Or do you have you just saying that there are two options, but you always use the tourniquet? I don't know. Yeah, no, that you've got different options. So if it's draining into a normal vein, so if you're doing a cheek lesion and you can see it draining into the external jugular, that's common, or a periorbital lesion, they all drain into the angular veins around the eye. So then I would just compress the outflow. You're going to get somebody to either put a little instrument with a, you know, with some gauze held mm-hmm. with an instrument over the outflow so that uh, you can fill it as much as you like within reason, remembering that sure. while you've got the outflow occluded, your risk of arterial reflux goes up or else extravasation into the skin and STS would cause uh, skin necrosis if that happened too. But also... If the outflow is to abnormal dysplastic veins, then that's slightly different, I think. Partly you can afford to sacrifice them, Mm -hmm. so you can think about that. But also, if they've got big veins and they're refluxing back into the venous malformation, then you can be treating it all day long as much as you like, but it's going to refill as soon as that patient gets off the table and you're not going to achieve it success. So then I think it's actually very important to close the outflow first before you get started. Do you have an idea beforehand from the pre-procedural imaging or is that something that you work out um, whenever you're basically doing your venography with the patient on the table? As far as like if you know that you're going to have to coil um, like a dysplastic uh, vein that's refilling the venous malformation? Yeah, it's a good question. I haven't seen one for ages where we've coiled the outflow, oh, okay. but that may just be our practice. I don't know. I think it's something you generally work out on table. Okay. Yeah. You might pick it up with an ultrasound, but you probably wouldn't. And actually, Chris, there's one other thing I would talk about for venous malformations. There's a few centers now, we've just started doing it, who have, especially for the periarticular lesions, are filling them full of glue, and then the surgeons are resecting them. And 
it took me a while to come around to liking that because I don't want someone operating on something that I think is my territory. You know, a tongue in cheek there, but sure. it took me a while to get used to the idea because we tell patients stereotherapy is great because you don't need surgery. It's not a scar, et cetera, et cetera. But now I'm beginning to see that if you've got a child with a lesion around the knee that you're going to have to treat for years and years, and still they may get a degree of joint irritation and, and arthropathy, then why wouldn't you fill it with glue? Our, our, our orthopedic surgeons are loving it. It's so easy to resect. We recently did a masseter lesion like that that our maxillofacial surgeons took out, and they said they would never have attempted to try and resect that lesion because of the facial nerve without the glue. But with the glue, there was no bleeding, and they could take all the time in the world to dissect the facial nerve out. So there were some, some mates of ours over in the States who, who got me thinking about it. And we've done, we've done half a dozen cases now, but it, I like it. It's nice. Who were the who were the mates over in the states? Was it Eric Monroe by chance? <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, over at Seattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Eric's uh, been on the show and also to prep for the podcast. I listened to a couple of lectures, one of which he gave at SIR about that. So, so um, can you speak to a little bit about that? And we don't. Have, we can almost make it kind of a footnote, but in terms of uh, specifically what locations and what what do you do differently? I mean, you already mentioned it's the glue, basically. Yeah, so exactly right. You're basically filling the lesion with as much glue as possible to turn it into a solid cast. So you need to think a little bit about the compartment that it's in and whether you can afford to do that. Um, Glue heats up a bit, so if you're near a really critical nerve, it maybe isn't what you want to do, but it, it shouldn't stop you. But think about it and think about giving some steroids at the same time. And then there's a bit of debate about whether you resect immediately or a couple of days later and I don't think it matters I think Eric's team do it the same day and that's what we do as well which is always a nightmare to set up isn't it to get two whole surgical teams coordinated yeah and two anesthetists and everything else but it's what we tend to do we have done a couple where we've glued them the one day and they've resected it the next and that's worked just as well yeah I don't think it matters so one thing that I did want to touch on was choice of sclerosants. And we've talked about now glue, but also STS being the, you know, uh, shouldering the, the lion's share of the burden. Is it worth talking about other sclerosants with venous malformations? Um, I, I feel like historically ethanol was, no, yeah. I'll let you take that from there. Yeah, absolutely. So it just depends, I think, what you're familiar with in your practice and comfortable with. And we've never used a lot of ethanol in our practice for the high flows or the low flows. So it's not something that we would use, but a lot of people do. And so long as you're familiar with it and you absolutely know the boundaries of what you can safely achieve, I think ethanol's fine in the right setting for the right lesions. And sometimes if you've got a very big lesion, then having something powerful like that is helpful, perhaps for the pelvic lesions, for instance. There's definitely a role for bleomycin. And I'm not that big a fan for bleomycin for the microcystic lymphatic malformations that everybody talks about in relation to bleomycin. I think it has a limited role for those, or rather it's not the be-all and end-all drug that everybody seems to claim that it is. It works brilliantly, by the way, for microcystic lymphatic disease around the eye. It's just fabulous around the orbit. I have no idea why it works well there and nowhere else, but it really does. But it's really nice for those very superficial venous malformations that are quite spongiform and solid, but very purple in the skin. So you can't use STS for those because you'll just ulcerate the whole area. And unless it's an area you can afford to sacrifice and replace with scar tissue, maybe on the sole of the foot, say, for a better long-term outcome. But even so, that feels quite aggressive to me. 
bleomycin works really well, but it has to be a lesion that's got a lot of stroma, is more stroma than vein, because bleomycin works by being trapped within the cells and slowly working away at the DNA and, and the cell structure rather than causing endothelial injury. But yeah, I love bleomycin for small venous malformations. I think it's great. For, so there's little cosmetic lesions on the face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we use bleomycin for those all the time. Okay. And there's a chap in the UK, Tobias Muir, who's a plastic surgeon up in Newcastle, up in the north of England, who started using electrosclerotherapy, where he's using reversible electroporators initially to treat the lesion and then putting bleomycin in on top of it. So Tobias written a lot of papers on bleomycin and his results for electrosclerotherapy are extraordinary. So if you're in a practice where you've got a reversible electroporator, which many units do, sure. and I don't know the details of this, I haven't tried it yet, but I've seen a lot of his talks on it and he's normally hugely happy to talk to people about it and be contacted. He's, he's great. I think he's really interesting, the work that he's doing. The theory being that you're punching temporary holes in the cell membrane and then the bleomycin can get in much quicker. So for really recalcitrant lesions that aren't changing, he just sees has seen some brilliant results with bleomycin using that. It's interesting. And one of my other questions that kind of segues into, is there any role, aside from sclerosis, um, is there any role for some of the other things IRs are comfortable with, like cryoablation of any of these lesions? Yeah, for sure. We love using cryo for some of our vascular malformations, again, the more solid ones. I think if you cryo a venous malformation with a lot of blood in it, you're going to get a, a hemoglobinuria and you're at risk of renal damage. But otherwise, you know those lesions that you sclerose and all you do is convert quite a compressible venous space into a solid mass and you come back and think, oh, now what do I do? Uh, we've cryoed quite a few of those and in some of them it hasn't worked, but it has in, in a surprising number of them. So we have quite a low threshold actually for cryo. And actually, again, we haven't had time to touch on it today, but FAVA, the fibroadipose mm -hmm. vascular anomaly, which is a real outlier lesion in all of this classification, but certainly there's a subset of those where cryo would be well suited to that. So it's a good thing to talk about with your plastic surgeons. Do we operate on this lump to try and remove it or should we try cryoing it first? Okay, excellent. So if we switch gears just slightly, um, can we talk a little bit about uh, instead of uh, treatment of venous malformations, treatment of lymphatic malformations, and maybe how that differs a little bit in uh, in terms of your approach. And there's probably a branch point there to talk about macrocystic versus microcystic. Yeah, for sure. I think if you have a pediatric practice, you're going to see a lot more lymphatic disease. And I guess the interesting thing about that must be that the majority of lymphatic sclerotherapy must work, right? Because if we're seeing much less of the disease in the adults, we must have fixed it by the time people are of age. So it is more of a pediatric condition, I think. Again, it's there from birth, but it may people may not know they've got it until they get a bleed into the cyst, for instance, or until it gets infected. Some of them can be quite prone to that. Sclerotherapy is much more straightforward. I don't use fluoroscopy. I don't use any x-ray guidance at all. So I would do these in the anesthetic room, just ultrasound guidance. If you're talking about a classic macrocystic lesion, and we'll come back to that in a second, I'd access it just with a single needle, aspirate it almost to dryness, and that almost is key. Okay. You, know, you only need one example where you, you aspirate it all and then you lose the lumen and you can't refill it. A, a bit like a nightmare nephrostomy. And then, sure. you, know, you have to wait for it to refill. 
and then inject your sclerosant of choice. And there is, there's a whole range for lymphatics as there is for venous malformations. Doxycycline and STS would probably be the two commonest. Uh, bleomycin classically for the more microcystic. So yes, yeah, speaking to that point, the textbooks say that a microcystic lymphatic malformation, the cysts are less than 10 millimeters in size. Mm -hmm. And the macrocysts are classically what you think about the big fluid-filled lesions, typically with a fluid-fluid level in them because they've usually got some blood products in them. But um, actually, I think the microcystic ones are where it's essentially solid stromal tissue. It's just okay. very spongy, solid stuff. If you can see the cysts on imaging, then I reckon that's macrocystic. Okay. Um, it's where you, the whole, on MR, on a tissue-weighted sequence, it would just look like a bright smudge. So you don't see the individual cells, but it's just all very ill-defined, starry sky, white, because you're looking at a, as much stromal wall as anything else. And again, they they can enhance quite a lot because obviously it's the stroma. Sure. You're seeing more enhancing. stroma than anything. Yeah, yeah. And those are the really tricky ones to treat. So I still don't have the answer for those. Bleomycin sometimes for sure. We've started doing cryo for some of those to see whether we can debulk them a little bit because the surgeons are, are really unkeen to go in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the macrocystic ones are so easy to treat and the results are generally pretty good. Um, okay. And just to back up for the audience, though, the, the reason why you don't have to take the precautions and do it under fluoro or use the two needle technique is because essentially you're not worried about any kind of venous egress or there, there's no communication to the other vascular system, which is like the whole crux of why you do all the other stuff under imaging and why you, okay. Yeah, exactly right. Although there are plenty of operators who do fill it with contrast under fluoroscopy. And that just wasn't how I was trained. And I, don't, I struggle to understand the logic there. But hey, I'm happy to for someone to try and explain it to me. But I, I just don't think you need to do it. I don't think it adds to the safety of the procedure. Gotcha. So we touched on it a little bit as far as compression uh, hose or stockings. Post-procedure care after you've done a pretty uh, aggressive treatment uh, on a patient, and, and aggressive in terms of like in, in terms of scope. Can you talk a little bit about how long you keep the patients and post-procedural pain regimens, if any, that you get into? Yeah, sure. It's pretty straightforward, to be honest. Almost all of these you should be able to do as a day case procedure. The orbits we keep in overnight because there's a risk they're going to do something scary overnight and they need an ophthalmology review the following day. But otherwise, um, most of these are a day case procedure. I say that everybody can mobilize as fully mobilize as tolerated on the day. And actually, you kind of want them to rest for a couple of days, but then you want them to get going. You don't want someone to sit around and let that joint or sure. limb stiffen up. So I try and minimize the amount of uh, instructions post-op, just kind of get them up and get them going. Okay. And then are NSAIDs helpful? Are uh, narcotics ever needed as far as uh, like post-procedural pain regimens for them to be discharged with? No, not at all. Um, not patients it. who have a lot of pain post-discharge, you need to start thinking about whether you've got a nerve injury and STS can do that. So those patients need to come back for review, really. Uh, you might need one dose of Oromorph or something immediately post-op on the ward, but that should be it. Yeah, I love non-steroidals for this. I think it's great. Some people worry about giving non-steroidals in a patient with a vascular malformation, but actually I think it's safe. I think it's fine. Okay. After you've treated, speak a little bit in terms of follow-up. Like when both, when do you want to see them clinically and what do you have scheduled as far as like any imaging follow-up or is sometimes the clinical presentation for follow-up determines when you get the imaging? Yeah, I tend to go clinically by how they are. So I don't do much post-procedure imaging, I have to say. 
we would call them all three or four days after the procedure and we're pretty strict about that. You know, we document all of those calls and I think it's really important to check that the skin hasn't broken down and that you haven't got a nerve injury. And if you have, we get those patients back quite quickly for nerve conduction studies. So we've got a baseline and we know what kind of injury they sustained and to get some physio and plastic surgery involvement. It's rare, but it happens and patients won't necessarily tell you about it or think to tell you about it. So those, that touching base with the patient within the first week is really key. But after that, I would wait as long as I could. So generally, unless I know that it's a huge lesion that I can't, if it's a big lesion, I know I can't completely get on top of in one session. Mm -hmm. I would book three sessions and I would book each of those about six weeks apart, give or take. But if I think I can get on top of it well enough in one session, then I would bring them back at about four months because you want them, I think it takes a month to get over sclerotherapy. And then you want at least a couple of months to see if their function and their pain have improved compared to where they were preoperatively. And it's, I think it's helpful to get them to keep a pain diary, particularly because it's hard for patients to remember what it was like beforehand. And you really need to know that to decide whether it's worth continuing along this pathway or not. So those are the things that I would ask about in clinic and assess rather than the imaging. A venous malformation can be completely asymptomatic and you might have treated it six times. It still looks almost the same on MRI. It's just depressing. So just don't do the repeat MRI. It's not going to guide your management, I don't believe. Okay, excellent. You touched a little bit on it in terms of nerve injury and skin necrosis, but can you speak a little bit to the common complications, or not common complications, but complications that come up in clinical practice and that you need to have your uh, antennas up for post yeah, so it depends on what drug you use. Um, and of course, STS and ethanol are the big two. So STS in terms of its renal excretion, which we talked about earlier, um, just make sure they're hyperhydrated. But the occasional patient, if you've used a very high dose, I have heard reports of people requiring dialysis even after sclerotherapy. So you may want to repeat the bloods a, a couple of weeks later if you know you've given an exceptionally high dose. But otherwise, more commonly, I think, is a little bit of skin necrosis, which usually should heal on its own, but somebody needs to be reviewing it, and nerve injury. And we published on this a long time ago now. We had about a 1% overall risk of nerve injury with STS in our venous malformation practice. And of those, half of them were permanent. But in all of the permanent ones, it was in a child who had already had a lot of surgery or prior sclerotherapy. So our theory was the nerve was probably pretty stuck down and trapped already. So it really wasn't going to tolerate any further insult. A, a de novo nerve, nerve injury. So if you're treating a parotid lesion and they wake up with a facial nerve palsy, those ones should recover within, say, six or eight, 12 weeks. Again, I'd get plastics involved, but generally they recover. And it's worth always talking about for sure. Bleomycin, you need to talk about the fact that the skin can get marked and the very rare risk of pulmonary fibrosis with it. They all need to be aware of that. And it's easy just to create a fact sheet and give them all of that information than go into detail about it in clinic. Because sure. I think you're giving a low dose. You shouldn't really be injecting it into a lesion that's got fast runoff. So it shouldn't be going systemically. But there are some cases reported now of acute toxicity reactions to bleomycin. And there have been a couple of fatalities on, on table or perioperatively. So I now talk about an acute anaphylaxis to, to bleomycin as well. Interesting. Okay. So 
taking a, a left turn away from complications uh, and kind of kind of trying to tie this up a little bit, can you give some helpful articles or resources that for either pediatric interventionalists that are getting interested in this or community interventional radi- radiologists that maybe you're trying to fill a role for this in their practice that may be helpful for them uh, to either go to or papers for them to read that kind of lay some foundation or evidence approach to like the vascular anomalies? Yeah, so... There is some good information on the ISFA website. We talked about the International Society for the Study of Vascular Malformations earlier. They've got a lot of information on their site and it's worth seeing. Members of ISFA have access to a discussion forum. And so I think that's useful too. But that obviously involves joining the society first and people may not want to go that far down that line. I think the majority of children's hospitals have got a lot of information on their websites on this because they see relatively more of it than the adult hospitals. Um, And particularly in the States, you guys do this stuff really well. So Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Boston, Toronto Sick Kids have all got great websites. And in terms of individual articles, it's hard to pick out particular ones. But I would start really with those centers and with the names of the people who are working there and just look for some review articles on the management of these. There isn't anything particularly new out there. So some of the best papers might actually be slightly older papers, actually. But yeah, I could give you some resources that uh, we could create a PDF for listeners if that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I can grab that from you uh, offline. Excellent. So I wanted to also uh, give you like kind of an open-ended question. Any uh, significant plug or anything that you'd like to plug as far as like pediatric interventional radiology, as far as a career choice? We don't get we don't get a ton of pediatric interventional radiologists on the show. And um, sometimes I feel like it just doesn't get a look. Do you know what I mean? Like so people go through their training, they go through radiology, you go through interventional radiology and you just don't think of pediatric radiology as a career choice. But a lot of it, I think, has to do with exposure. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible how often people say, I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't know I could do it. And what I like is perhaps because of that, the community is pretty varied. So in UK and Europe, people can come at it from a diagnostic pediatric radiology background or from an adult IR background. Although interestingly, in the States now, there's an increasing number of pediatric IR fellowships. So there are more structured training paths available. We are lagging far, far behind in the UK and Europe. So there are very few people who do it as a dedicated job over here, which perhaps reflects the fact that in the States, there are a lot more children's standalone children's hospitals. Whereas in the UK, it's more mixed. So the adult IRs are maybe diving in there and doing some of the work, but it's growing and it's really important. For instance, the whole field of pediatric IO is really, really in its infancy. If you think of pediatric IR, it's where adult IR was 20 years ago. So everything that you guys were battling with 20 years ago, getting recognition, getting training pathways, getting jobs, getting um, funding, getting the, your clinicians aware that you even existed to get the referrals. That's kind of where we are now. But it's exciting. It means that the world of adult IR is getting increasingly subspecialized. You know, you're either, you're a hepatobiliary IR, right. you're a vascular IR, you're MSK. You can't afford to do that in pediatric IR because you need to be a jack of all trades. And I love that, that literally in one day I might be sclerosing an orbit 
stenting a baby's trachea and putting a nephrostomy in on up on the unit. So you, you do a bit of everything and I really enjoy that. And personally, I really enjoy working with kids. They never complain. They recover. They really don't. You go on a post-op ward round and you can't find the child because they run off somewhere to the playroom or else they're like, Dr. Alex, I drew you a picture and I've had pizza and it's so cool. And when can I come back? And you're never going to get an adult saying, you know, there's just going to be complaints on the ward round about sure. how much their, <laughs> their their leg hurts, right? So I like that. And what a privilege for a family to entrust their child to your care as well. I, I like all of that. I think it's great. It's a very, a very social, a very human subspecialty to be a part of. It's great. I love it. That's excellent. Well, you're certainly a, a strong advocate for it. And maybe we'll include some contact information from you if uh, any interventional radiologists or any uh, radiologists who are considering pediatric radiology would like to get in touch with you know, someone who's got a lot of good things to say about it. All right. So to our audience, thank you guys for listening. If you guys enjoyed this podcast but want more, please check out the so show notes of this episode. We're going to have a, a couple of different things on there as far as articles that I get offline from Dr. Barnacle and then some of the resources that we uh, mentioned earlier. Those are going to be found at www.backtable.com. There's usually about a week lag between us posting the show notes and us posting the show, so just keep that in mind. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing, and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review. We read them all. It helps us in a lot of different ways. We love the feedback. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back to Bill podcast. Thanks, Alex. Thank you.